Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 64, The Protectress of Athens. Although the ancient Athenians believed that they received their name after their patron deity, Athena, the goddess's name is probably an eponym of the city of Athens itself, and not the other way around. In other words, the city predates the existence of the goddess and thus lends its name to her, not actually Athens taking its name from Athena. In a Linear B tablet from Knossos, there is the inscribed name of Athana Patnia, or Patnia Athana, which is often translated as the Mistress or Lady Athena. There is a majority belief among scholars that Athena was in origin a Minoan or Mycenaean deity, perhaps identical with the shield goddess who appears on a painted tablet at Mycenae itself. As a warrior goddess who protected the king and citadel, this mistress had parallels in the Near East, with Ishtar and Anat, and in Egypt with Neith. In later times, she was syncretized with the Roman goddess Minerva. Still, the exact relationship between the Bronze Age goddess and the Athena of the classical Greeks is unclear, since gaps and inconsistencies in the archaeological evidence mean that we cannot demonstrate continuity of worship. Still, Athena's sanctuaries and temples are very often found at the city center, particularly on fortified heights like the Athenian Acropolis. In Greek towns of the early Iron Age, her dwelling place was often juxtaposed to that of the local chieftain or king. Later, she championed the polis with its varied forms of government. She presided over the arts of war, such as the taming of horses, the training of warriors, and the building of ships. As a goddess of crafts, particularly weaving and metalworking, she invokes the palace economies of the Bronze Age. Even if prototypes of the goddess predated the rise of Athens, she became very early on a unique and divine projection of the corporate personality of the city itself. The Athenians wanted to be known for their wisdom, their military excellence, and their talents in various crafts, all of which the goddess embodied. And so they used Athena as a kind of symbol or mascot on their coins and in images throughout the city. Their foundation myth, that is the story that tells how their city came to be, includes the dominating presence of Athena. They were, for all intents and purposes, the children of Athena, a difficult feat that only myth could accomplish, given that she had never been touched by a male. For how this came about in the early myths of Athens, check out episode 24. Because of this, Athena is often followed by the epithet Parthenos, which means virgin, and so the famous Parthenon in the Acropolis of Athens was the temple dedicated to Athena the Virgin. It is not merely an observation of her virginity, but a recognition of her role as the enforcer of sexual modesty, as the Athenians upheld the ideal of virginal female behavior in their patriarchal society. According to myth, when Zeus became the ruler of the New World Order, following the Titanomachy, he lusted after Metis, the Titaness who assisted him in defeating his father, by giving Kronos an emetic that caused him to vomit out Zeus's siblings. Metis took on all sorts of animal shapes to elude him, finally becoming a gnat. Meanwhile, Zeus was informed from Uranus and Gaia that any union he would have with Metis would result in the birth of a girl that resembles him in nature, but then he would have a son that would displace him from his reign. Well, Zeus didn't want any of this, so he swallowed Metis while she was still in the form of a gnat, but it was too late because she was already pregnant, unbeknownst to Zeus. At some point down the road, Zeus experienced an enormous headache, and he called out for the other gods to help him. 
Hermes realized what he needed to do, and so he split Zeus's skull open with an axe, and from his head sprang forth Athena, fully grown and armored. Hera was so annoyed at Zeus for having produced a child without her, she was the goddess of childbirth after all, that she conceived and bore Hephaestus by herself, possibly because of the manner of her birth, from a man's head and not a female's womb. Athena often exhibited traits that were more typically categorized as masculine, more so than feminine, even though she was often depicted as a beautiful woman. However, the birth of Athena was not without some feminine influence. Even though she sprung forth from Zeus's head, Metis, whose very name means wisdom, was technically her mother, and Athena would go on to possess the traits of the goddess whom Zeus swallowed. Still, Athena remained rightly bonded to her father, and she would be the only one among his children who had the privilege to wear his shield, the Aegis, and enter his arsenal and use his thunderbolt. Athena was greatly involved in the war with the giants, and so she can be seen as one of the great defenders of the Olympian world order. Only she and Zeus were brave enough to defend the world order from the usurper Typhon, a monstrous, fire-breathing son of Gaia, who is said to have had an outlandish appearance, with many strange-shaped heads and hands and snakes extending from his thighs. When the other Olympians fled and concealed themselves in Egypt, Athena and Zeus hunted him down in Syria. They then drug him across the sea to be buried under Mount Etna in Sicily, as a volcanic god and the source of the fire in the forge of Hephaestus. It is important to note in all of these stories that the giants, under the direction of Gaia, the mother of the Titans, wanted to reestablish the reign of terror and violence that had characterized earlier generations of gods. Athena shows herself to be a champion of Zeus's civilized and intelligent rule, and by extension, progress and civilization in the society of men. In the story of the contest between Poseidon and Athena, her patronage of Athens, Athena gave the valuable and well-received gift of the olive tree, which stands next to the Parthenon, in contrast to the saltwater spring given by Poseidon. Because of this, her symbol became the olive tree, and the olive became the source of wealth and power for Athens, providing something edible, something that can be used for shelter, and something that can even be traded. Athena, though, only began to give gifts to the Athenians. As Athena Agarne, she was the patroness of the craftsmen and artisans who work with their brain and their hands. With her clever mind, she was particularly skilled in taking raw materials and untamed elements of the earth and exploiting them for profitable use. The goddess herself is unequaled in regards to ceramics, carpentry, and weaving. She was taught the crafts by the Cyclops and then passed them down to the people. Several of Athena's myths are understood in this context, such as the well-known story of Arachne, there are many versions of this myth, but the most well-attested is found in the Metamorphosis of the Roman poet Ovid. In one version, she was from Lydia and was the daughter of a famous dyer in purple, and she was credited with having invented linen cloth, while her son introduced the use of the spindle in the manufacture of wool. So as we can see, the production of clothing ran deep in her family. In Ovid's version, she was a Lydian maiden who was taught weaving by Athena at a young age. She was arguably Athena's best student, and she became such a great weaver that she bragged excessively to everyone that her skill in weaving has now surpassed that of even her teacher, and she refused to acknowledge that her skill came, and in part at least, from the goddess. Athena, though, so loved the girl that she gave Arachne a chance to repent her hubris and redeem herself. She did so by assuming the form of an old woman, and going amongst the people in Arachne and warning her, quote, You can never compare to any of the gods. Plead for forgiveness, and Athena might spare your soul. End quote. Not knowing that it was Athena in disguise, Arachne doubled down, though, replying, 
quote, I only speak the truth, and if Athena thinks otherwise, then let her come down and challenge me herself, end quote. Athena was so furious about Arachne's audacity that she revealed her divine nature and challenged her to a contest. Athena chose to weave a tapestry showing her victory over Poseidon for patronage of Athens, plus punishments that the gods imposed on presumptuous mortals. Arachne wove a tapestry that depicted the sexual escapades of the gods, particularly Zeus, who tricked and seduced many mortal women. When Athena saw that Arachne continued to insult the gods with her work, she became even more enraged. In typical divine fashion, she picked up her staff and destroyed Arachne's tapestry and loom. Athena then struck Arachne in the head three times. A terrified Arachne, realizing the mistake that she had made, then hung herself with her thread and her shame. Athena felt sorry for her though, and said that she could live but had to hang there forever. After saying this, she sprinkled her with the juice of Akate's herb, and immediately at the touch of this dark poison, Arachne's hair fell out. With it went her nose and ears, her head shrank to the smallest size, and her whole body became tinier. Her slender fingers struck to her sides as legs, and the rest of her body formed her belly, from which she still spins a thread, and as a spider, weaves her ancient web. She kept her old occupation, but was turned into a spider for her hubris, and the Greek word for her spider was arachne. Athena's association with the crafts often brings her into the realm of Hephaestus, and so this is why the two gods were frequently worshipped together, for instance at the Hephaestion and the Athena Agora. Because her functions oftentimes overlapped with those of Zeus and Poseidon, Athena was often worshipped in tandem with these deities too. Poseidon and Athena shared space in the Ionic Temple in the Acropolis and at Cape Sunion because of their common interest in the Athenian polis, though the myth of their contest of the land shows that the relationship was one of opposition. At Colonus in Attica, Poseidon Hippios and Athena Hippia, of the horses, had a shared altar in Pausanias' time. Athena's interest in horses stemmed not only from her identity as a war goddess, but also from her role as a teacher of crafts and skills. When Poseidon, with his violent nature, attacked Demeter and sired a horse, named Arion, Athena created the bridle that went on the horse to control it. Furthermore, according to Pindar, Athena gave a golden bridle to Bellerophon, which he used to tame Poseidon's horse-shaped son with Medusa, called Pegasus. In return, he dedicated an altar to Athena Hippia, in Corinth, where her worship was focused primarily on the taming and training of horses. And so Athena gave to mankind the ability to control horses, while Poseidon, on the other hand, was the creator of the horse and the source of its fierce energy and speed. Athena also helped the Greeks turn iron into the plow and to develop the yoke for animals. And so Athena is a symbol of civilized behavior. While Poseidon roused waves and created trouble for sailors, Athena helped the Greeks build the first ship, the Argo, which the Greeks used to control the sea. Also, Hermes protected the flocks in distant mountains, from which Athena taught mankind to create wool for their clothes. Furthermore, while Ares represents the chaos of war, Athena symbolizes the order in war. When war breaks down, he loved the fury, but Athena was interested in an orderly, defensive war. She helped the Athenians to develop wartime tactics and technologies, and she built up the defenses of the city. Athena, though, disliked fighting without purpose, and thus preferred to use wisdom to settle predicaments, and so she encouraged people to use intuitive wisdom rather than anger or violence. She approved of fighting only for a reasonable cause, or as the last resort to resolve a conflict. She inspired art, literature, philosophy, and statescraft. She set up the first trial by jury and introduced the idea of mitigating and extenuating circumstances and judging the accused. 
In short, she provided everything that was needed for high civilization, and in doing so, she propelled Athens to the forefront of the Greek city-states. And so, the many epithets of Athena speak to her technical skills and wisdom. She has clear vision and was sharp-witted, and thus she was described as Glaucopis, which either means owl-eyed or bright-eyed, or describes the gray-blue color of Athena's eyes. Because of this, the owl too became the symbol of Athena. Even today, the owl is a symbol of wisdom. Unsurprisingly, the owl became a sort of Athenian mascot. Because of her fierce, warlike character, the Greeks recognized that civilization has to be defended in order to thrive, and so they also called her Athena Promachus, which literally means forefighter, because she stands on the front lines and holds up her shield to defend her favorites in battle. In fact, the statue of Athena Promachus on the Athenian Acropolis showed her in a defensive posture, with a helmet on her head, and wielding a long spear and a shield adorned with the head of Medusa. A large snake accompanied her, and in her hand she holds Nike, the goddess of victory. Worshipped as Athena Polius, meaning of the city, she was the protector of not only Athens, but also of many other cities, including Argos, Sparta, Gorton, Lindos, and Larissa. Athena's mythical intimacy with her father Zeus, as we mentioned earlier, is reflected in many dual cults, particularly those that deal with civic administration, law, and justice. In Sparta, they shared the titles of Agoreos, or of the marketplace, Exenios, or of strangers, and Ambulios, or of council, among others. In Athens, as we learn from the orator Antiphon, the council chamber, or Bulletarian, contained a shrine of Zeus Boleos and Athena Bolea, or of the council, at which members prayed as they entered. Polyaios, Zeus's title as the protector of the city, is the masculine form of Athena's common epithet Polius, while Zeus Fratrios and Athena Fratria shared altars throughout Attica as the patrons of the Athenian kinship groups known as Fratries. Athena also frequently accompanies Zeus when he appears in his chthonic guise as a serpent. In the 5th century BC, for example, a dull sanctuary of Zeus Malikios and Athena existed at Athens. The same configuration of goddess and serpent companion is to be found in the cult of Athena Atonia, and of course in the presence of Athena's serpent, sometimes identified with Erichthonios, on the Athenian Acropolis. In fact, the earliest autochthonic Athenian kings, like Kecrops, are often associated with the serpent, as we discussed in episode 24. Athena is often called Pallas Athena in literature, as well as on archaic dedications from the Athenian Acropolis, and two different stories explain this name. The first is that the giant she fought in the Gigantomachy, and whose skin she flayed and then wore on her breastplate, was named Pallas. This breastplate itself has snakes on its border because the giant was known for having snaky legs. If this is true, then Pallas is derived from the verb palane, which means to brandish, as in a weapon. If the other story is true, then it is derived from Palacus, meaning youth or young woman. The god Triton, a son of Poseidon, had a small girl named Pallas and gave her to Athena to watch over her. At one point, while training her in fighting, the two were sparring with a spear, and Athena tripped and fell. When Pallas was about to jab her, Zeus intervened with his aegis, or shield, and blocked her blow. But Athena grew angry and killed the girl in retaliation. Athena felt so much remorse for her actions that she took on the girl's name and built a statue of Pallas dressed like Athena, known as the Palladium, and kept it with her on Mount Olympus. One day, she accidentally kicked it and it fell from the heavens and landed in Troy, and so as long as the Trojans possessed it, the city could never be taken, 
So during the Trojan War, it became the focus of much intrigue, as the Greeks sent in several expeditions to steal the Palladium from the Trojans. In fact, many later sources speak of the successful covert mission by Odysseus and Diomedes in entering Troy and carrying off the small statue. Vase paintings also illustrate this theft. Later, Athens, Argos, Sparta, and even Rome had their own protective images of this type, each boasting that it was the original Palladium of Troy. Trials for accidental homicide and the murder of non-citizens were conducted at a court in the place called Palladion, located on the southeast side of Athens on the Elysis River. The origins of this court were also tied in legend. The Athenian king Demophon, the son of Theseus, was said to have confiscated the Palladium from Diomedes of Argos and his men at the port of Thaleron after his return from Troy. During this scuffle, Demophon either killed the Argives or accidentally caused the death of an Athenian. Regardless, he was brought to trial for this homicide in a court near the Elysis River, which thereafter served the same function. Two old priestly families, the Gephereoi and the Bazuagai, oversold the sanctuary of Athena established there, and during an annual festival, the statue was carried in a procession to Thaleron, where it was washed in the sea. This cleansed the image from the miasma that was brought about by repeated exposure to the murderers who were tried in the court, and the original bathing of the statue was ascribed to King Demophon himself. Because it was made of wood and small enough to carry about, the Palladion was probably of an archaic date. In ancient Greek literature, Athena appears as the patron and helper of many heroes, who depended on her craftiness and intelligence to either get them out of situations or to carry out their heroic endeavors. Oftentimes, she replaces them in actions so that she can defeat the enemy and keep them safe, in her role as Sotera, or Savior. For example, Perseus could not have accomplished the insurmountable task of beheading the Gorgon Medusa, her former priestess who Poseidon raped in her temple, without the assistance and advice of Athena. From then on, she adorns her horrifying Gorgon head on her shield as a deterrent. Also, Athena shows Heracles the way to capture and destroy the various beasts while he was performing his labors, and she supplies him with the necessary weapons in order to free his home country Thebes. Furthermore, she advised Bellerophon on how to tame Pegasus, and she plays a leading part in building the Argo, the ship which carried the Argonauts to Colchis so that Jason could find the Golden Fleece. During the Trojan War, Athena and Hera support the Greeks, driven by their hatred towards Paris, who refused to give them the apple of beauty and instead preferred Aphrodite. Although she is a warfare deity, she fights with intelligence and prudence, contrary to her brother Ares, who is known as the frivolous and furious god of war. In fact, she frequently faced off against him on the battlefield, since Ares allied with the Trojans, defeating him badly on several occasions. Furthermore, wearing the helmet of Hades, which makes one invisible, she aided Diomedes in defeating both Aphrodite and Ares, and making him known as one of the greatest heroes of the Greeks. Athena assisted the Greeks during the closing years of the Trojan War, when most of the other gods had ceased to maintain their involvement, though the presence of a major shrine for her in the city of Troy did complicate matters. In the end, however, she helped Odysseus design and create the wooden horse that brought down the city and won the war for the Greeks. Again, this should be interpreted in terms of the march of civilization. In the Greek view, Troy represented the East with all of its decadence and strange worldview. In other words, Troy stood for another direction that mankind could take in its progress, a direction that challenged the Greek, and therefore Western, vision for what mankind should be. 
The struggle was great, but in the end, the Greeks defeated the Trojans and secured, with the help of Athena, a social order molded in their image. Athena particularly supported the wily Odysseus, the man of many turns, who depended on his wits to help him navigate a world filled with violence and brute force, as well as his son Telemachus. On his way home, she assisted Odysseus in getting out of the many predicaments that he found himself in, as well as assisting Telemachus in his travels around to his father's old comrades. Along with Apollo, she helped Orestes escape from the Furies, who were after him for killing his mother, Clytemnestra, and acquitted him with her vote at the court of the Areopagus. Her advisory role towards everyone shows the superiority of the use of intellect over other types of powers. During the sack of Troy, Ajax of Locris, not to be confused with Ajax, the cousin of Achilles, attacked the Trojan princess Cassandra, who had sought refuge beside the statue of Athena inside her temple, and as he dragged her away, he toppled her sacred image. According to some sources, Ajax violently raped her inside the temple. Regardless, either deed was sacrilege enough to ignite the goddess's wrath. But instead of directing it solely at Ajax, she unleashed it on all of the Greeks as they returned home because they had failed to reprimand him. So she persuaded her father Zeus to send a storm that sank many of their ships. Ajax's ship, in particular, was hit with a thunderbolt and he drowned. A few years later, a plague fell upon Locris, and the people consulted Apollo's oracle at Delphi. They were told that their penance for Ajax's crime would last a thousand years, and that they must choose two of their girls by lot and deliver them to the shores of Troy to serve as temple servants of Athena. These girls must be led to the goddess secretly by night, while the Trojan men hunted them down. Maidens killed attempting to reach the safety of the temple were to be burned with wood that bore no fruit, and their ashes cast in the sea. Those who arrived unharmed had to remain in the sanctuary for life, barefoot and wearing only simple clothing, sweeping out the temple and performing other menial duties like slaves. They grew old as virgins, and when one died, another maiden must be brought to take her place. This tribute of maidens, reported most fully by Lycophron and mentioned by a number of later authors, has no exact parallels in Greek practice. Maiden sacrifices are common enough in myth, but rarely, if ever, did they occur in the ritual of historical times. The Locrians of Italy, according to some dubious sources, devoted their daughters as sacred prostitutes to the service of Aphrodite, but in these accounts the girls' lives were not threatened, nor were they forced to leave their homes forever. A ritual requirement of lifelong virginity is extremely unusual, as the Greeks had nothing comparable to the Roman Vestal Virgins, for example. Therefore, the amazing account of the Locrian maidens would likely be dismissed today as a fantasy, except for a 3rd century BC inscription, which establishes the journey of the maidens as historical fact. It declares that the descendants of Ajax, in their city of Narex, in the Greek region of Locris, shall receive significant privileges, such as tax relief and priority access to courts, in return for sending the two maidens to Ilion. The girls were to have their expenses paid, including the costs of their wardrobes. The inscription makes it clear, however, that the girls served for a limited period, not for life, that they wore new garments, not rags, and that they were chosen from elite families, not by lot. It is reasonable to assume that the hunting of the maidens, though an important part of the ritual, was innocuous. The custom probably began in response to a civic crisis, not after the Trojan War, when the site of Troy was abandoned, but in the 6th century BC and with the cooperation of the Greek colonists at the new Greek colony of Ilion, who were eager to play the role of Trojans. 
There's evidence that it lapsed in the 4th century BC and was revived with due ceremony, perhaps about the time of this inscription. The journey of the Locrian maidens has thus been interpreted as a ritual counterpart of the many myths in which adolescent girls give up their lives to save their cities. It has also been called an exemplary initiation, by which a few members of an aged cohort stand in for a whole group in performing acts symbolic of that group's passage to adulthood. Finally, the putative humiliation of the maidens and the casting of their ashes in the sea are characteristic of the scapegoat or famakos rite, in which a city wards off harm from itself by expelling individuals who are treated as carriers of pollution. If you remember from episode 62, a similar rite took place to Apollo at the Thargelia festival. Homer gives Athena the epithet Alakomenes, which literally means she who protects, and evokes the warlike goddess of the Palladion. Several cults of Athena under this name existed, but its oldest home was perhaps her ancient sanctuary in the Boeotian town of Alakomenai. Local legend held that Athena was born, or grew to adulthood here. Her poetic epithet, Tritogenia, or Triton-born, was associated with the river god Triton. Oddly enough, nearby Coronia boasted another sanctuary of Athena, of equal antiquity and renown, which served as the site of the Pan-Boeotia, or Festival of All the Boeotians. This gathering, already old in Pindar's time, involved contests and chariot racing, music and athletics. A series of 6th century BC Boeotian vases showing a festival in progress and an arm Athena standing before an altar and temple have been attributed to this cult. The worship of Athena Etonia originated in the Thessalian town of Iton, but was brought to Boeotia when the Boatoi moved south in the early Iron Age. In the 7th century BC, Alcius sang of this Athena, whom he addresses as Athena Polymadokos, or sustainer of war. The goddess's companion was a Chthonian deity represented as a snake and understood to be either Zeus or Hades. In the 5th century BC, Agorakritos, a pupil of Phidias, created bronzes of Athena and Zeus for the Atonion. Athena was served by a priestess, successor of the legendary priestess Iodama who ventured at night into the sacred area and saw a vision of the goddess wearing the Aegis with its gorgon head. Iodama was turned to stone, perhaps she was identified with a life-size statue, and a fire was lit daily on her altar in the sanctuary. And now, let us take a short break for a word from our sponsors. The History of Ancient Greece is powered by the CLNS Media Network, and today's episode is brought to you by Great Courses Plus. I love digging into stories of the past, exploring mysteries, learning as much as possible, which is why I love watching and listening to The Great Courses Plus. This was made for curious people like us. The Great Courses Plus finds the brightest minds from the top 1% of professors in America and makes them accessible to all of us in their lecture series. There's unlimited access to stream thousands of videos and audio lectures with so many different topics to explore world history, literature, even learn a new language. This is lifelong learning at its best. Lately, I've been enjoying their series called The Mysterious Etruscans. So much of what we give the Romans credit for actually first came from the Etruscans, spreading the alphabet, creating roads, water control, even family structure and relationships. There's even fascinating lectures on the Etruscan gods. One in particular was Minerva, the Etruscan goddess of war, art, wisdom, and medicine, who contributed much of her character to the Roman Minerva, and who Hellenized Etruscan saw as their counterpart to the Greek Athena. 
I know you're going to enjoy the Great Courses Plus as much as I do, so they're giving my listeners unlimited access to all of their courses free for one month, but you need to sign up through my special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Greece. Start your free month today. Sign up now at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Greece. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Greece. And now, let us turn our attention back to the ancient Greeks. Athena's great festival, the Panathenaea, took place every year during midsummer, beginning on the 28th day in the month of Hecatomion, named for the customary hecatombs, or sacrifices, of multiple cattle to the goddess. This correlates to either late July or early August in modern terms. It was celebrated as Athena's birthday, and as such, marked the beginning of the Athenian calendar year. The origin of the festival probably dates from the 7th century BC, but at some point in the 560s BC, under the reign of Pisistratus, it started to emulate the other Panhellenic festivals that we discussed in episode 21. It became one of the most important of all festivals in the entire Greek world, and was one of the few festivals in which all Athenians could take part, including women, medics, which were resident non-citizens, and freed slaves. Still, members of the aristocratic families played the most important roles. Every four years, it was celebrated as the Great Panathenaea and was marked by the addition of athletic, musical, and poetry contests on a lavish, pan-Hellenic scale. The management of this elaborate festival was the responsibility of a number of officers, some of whom administered the games, while others organized the procession and the sacrifices. The preparations for the Panathenaea began nine months earlier, on the last day of the month of Pianepsion, which was late October or early November, with the celebration of the Halkea, or the Festival of Bronze Workers, in honor of Athena Egane and Hephaestus, both of whom were patron deities of craftsmen and artisans. Although Hephaestus was involved in this festival, its main focus was Athena, as the offerings recorded for each day were for Athena, not for Hephaestus. Furthermore, Hephaestus did not receive any gifts, whereas the main focus of the festival was the sacred peplos for Athena. Weavers especially honored Athena Ergonae, and as part of the Halkea, the Ergastanae, or women weavers, set up a loom upon which over the next nine months they would weave the peplos that was destined to be presented to Athena during the Panathenaea. The Ergastanae were the weavers of the smaller peplos that was woven annually for the so-called lesser Panathenae, but the larger peplos that was woven every four years for the so-called greater Panathenae was woven by professional male weavers. Regardless of its size, the weavers both created the same scene on the peplos, that being the battle of the gods and giants, known as the Gigantomachy, and in particular, Athena's defeat of the giant Enceladus with a spear. The Ergastinae were either virgin girls of marriageable age or older matrons, and were assisted by two little girls clad in white, about 7 to 11 years old. Four had been nominated from the elite families by the Athenian people, but only two were to be chosen by the Archon Basileus. These girls, known as the Arephoroi, lived on the Acropolis for the rest of the year, just as the daughters of King Kecrops once did. Their role was to tend to the sacred olive tree of Athena. Because of their youth, they were not really directly involved with the weaving, but it was believed that their presence blessed the work. It was considered a great honor to be chosen as an era foroi. In fact, there are honorific portraits and inscribed statues that have been found that were dedicated by aristocratic fathers in order to commemorate their daughter's involvement. As late spring drew near, the ritual and logistical preparations for the Panathenaea began in earnest. The purificatory month of Thargelion, 
which was late May or early June, brought two holy days involved for the cult statue of Athena, both associated with Aglaros, one of the three daughters of Kecrops and a priestess of Athena who leapt to her death from the Acropolis. The first day, called the Calentaria, or of beautification, is also described as the sweeping out of the temple. The verb kalunain can mean both adorn and sweep. Alternatively, the ritual may have involved the cosmesis, or adornment of the image, with jewelry and other items, because it was said in connection with this festival that Aglaros was the first to adorn the goddess's image. Then, on the 22nd day of the month of Thargelion, the Athenians celebrated the Plantaria, a festival that lasted for five days. Its name came from the verb plinane, meaning to wash. During this period, the Plantrides, who were priestesses from the Praxia Ergidae, an Athenian priestly family, performed a cleansing ritual within the Erechtheion, a sanctuary on the Acropolis that held the original cult statue of Athena. During this festival, a rope surrounded this temple in order to preclude all outside communication in it, and these priestesses removed the garments from the statue, bathed and purified them. The naked image was veiled for one day to conceal it from the sight of the people, and the city was therefore, so to speak, without its protecting deity, and thus it was considered unlucky to conduct either private or public business on that day. Also, all five days during this festival were considered apophrodes, or impure days, in which all Athenian sanctuaries were to be closed, and some Attic deems, such as Erkia and Thorikos, held their own observances too. At this time, the priestesses conducted secret rites, and a cake made of dried figs, the first domesticated fruit, called Hegatoria, was carried at the head of a procession as a reminder of Athena's primitive origins. The somberness of the day was attributed to the mourning of Aglaros, but it was clearly part of a cycle of purification and a necessary preliminary to the celebration of the New Year and the Panathenaea. A month called Plantarion, attested in the Ionian islands of Paros, Thassos, and Chios, suggests that this observance predates the Ionian migration, though it is not certain that the name Plantarion refers specifically to the same washing ritual. During the month of Scyrophorion, which was late June or early July, the Arephoroi concluded their year serving Athena on the Acropolis by performing a secret nocturnal rite called the Arephoria. The name is derived from Araton, or mystery, and the verb pharein, meaning to carry, and so the two girls who partook in this rite were the Arephoroi, or the ones who carry a mystery. According to Pausanias, Athena's priestess gave them sacred objects and baskets, which they carried on their heads, starting from the Erechtheion to an enclosure in the city not far from the sanctuary of Aphrodite and the gardens, accessible by a natural underground descent. Although Pausanias does not identify Aphrodite's sanctuary as the actual destination of the Arephoroi, archaeological evidence has revealed a secret stairway off of the Acropolis, near the Erechtheion, and so it has been suggested that the girls climbed down this passageway on the north slope of the Acropolis, towards an area that served in classical times as the shrine of Aphrodite and Eros. Neither the priestess nor the young girls knew what the objects were that were being carried, but when they reached their destination, they exchanged what they had with them for other hidden objects, and then immediately returned to the Acropolis. This curious ritual has been interpreted as either a fertility rite or a rite of passage, especially given the mention of Aphrodite in the comment of one scoliast that the sacred objects were dough models of male genitalia and snakes. 
Their journey reflects the myth that Athena gave the three daughters of Kecrops something secret to carry in a basket, which turned out to be the snake-legged, earth-born infant Erichthonios, the mysterious lust child of Hephaestus and Gaia. When two of the girls, Aglaros and Herse, disobeyed the goddess's command and peeked into the basket, they were terrified and leapt from the Acropolis. The sanctuary of Aglaros lied at the northern slope of the Acropolis, and it may have been a precinct that the two Aeroforoi would have passed by as they descended. Pandrosos, the one daughter who obeyed Athena, had a shrine beside the Ionic Temple of Athena, and the families of former Aeroforoi sometimes made dedications to Athena and Pandrosos. Finally, the new year brought the Panathenaea. It typically lasted eight days and was kicked off at sunrise by a lampe de Droma, or torch race, from Piraeus to Athens. The highlight of the festival was the Panathenaic procession, in which all segments of Athenian society participated. The procession assembled before dawn at the Dipolon Gate in the northern section of the city, that being the Karamikos, or the Potter's Quarter, and made its way through the Agora towards the Acropolis following the path that is known as the Sacred Way, a distance that is about one kilometer. Only Athenian citizens and those carrying objects in the procession could pass through the Propylaea and enter the Acropolis, though. They passed the Parthenon and stopped at the Great Altar of Athena, in front of the Erechtheon. Each year, a newly woven peplos was placed on a life-sized old wooden statue of Athena Polius, the guardian of the city. Every four years, an enormous peplos was placed on the Athena Parthenos. This giant peplos was wheeled along the procession, hoisted atop some sort of a float in the shape of a ship, kind of like a sail. There must have been a ramp at the Propylaea in order to get this float-like object up onto the Acropolis. The olive wood colt statue was now fully dressed and adorned for the first time since the removal of its cosmesis during the Plantaria. Also, the little girls who were chosen to be in the procession each carried a normal-sized peplos for the life-sized Athena statues. Once they got up to the Parthenon and swapped out all of the peploi, both on the large statue and on the life-sized statues, there was a sacrifice of about 100 cattle. All were sacrificed on the great altar of Athena Polius, except for one, which was pre-selected as the best quality cow and sacrificed on the altar of Athena Nike. This was overseen by the ten Hieropoioi, literally the doers of sacred things, and there was one from each Athenian tribe. The meat was divided amongst the Athenian citizens, with larger portions being given to the Pretanes, the nine archons, the twelve Stratigoi, the taxiarchs, the treasurers of Athena, the Hieropoioi, and the Canaphoroi, or those who carried baskets in the procession with sacrificial implements. This was a highly honored task, usually given to young girls. Then, the rest of the meat was consumed by the Athenians and the Karamikos, where there was a huge celebration that lasted all night. The procession is depicted on a series of relief sculptures on the Parthenon, which we will discuss next episode. An inscription from the 4th century BC gives some idea of the expenses incurred in mounting the annual Panathenaic festival. It gives the beginning of a decree that concerns the income from Nia, a tract of land that was to be used to purchase the animals for the sacrifice. It states that 41 minai, or 4,100 drachmas, was earned from that land and used towards the bull sacrifice. For the expenses of the procession, the decoration of the great altar, and all the other necessary expenditures for the festival and the all-night celebration, 50 more drachmas were provided. Since the average day wage of an Athenian at this period is estimated to be about one drachma, we can see that this was an enormous expense each year. 
Although the Panathenaic procession was open to many segments of the Athenian population, the athletic games and contests at the Great Panathenaea were only for male Athenian citizens. They were modeled after those at Olympia. Winning the chariot race was considered to be the greatest honor. Along with the usual athletic and equestrian contest, there also were the Euandrion, which was a beauty contest amongst the athletes, Purike, or military dances and armor accompanied by music, Apabate, or chariot races in which the driver had to jump out of the chariot, run alongside, and jump back in, and a ship race in the harbor. The winner of these athletic and equestrian competitions won an amphora filled with olive oil, made from the olive trees sacred to Athena. Many of these have survived from modern study. Most Panathenaic amphorae were inscribed with Ton Athenathon Athlon, or of the contest from Athens. Created in the black figure technique, on the reverse, there usually was a representation of the athletic or equestrian contest for which the prize was awarded. Also, there were musical, either singing or playing an instrument, and rhapsodic competitions, in which they recited Homer's epic poetry, and the winners were awarded in drachmas. To judge from the evidence of the surviving deem calendars, many of the Attic deems held local celebrations of Athena's great city festivals. At Therikos, there was a sacrifice for the Plantaria, and at Archea, a sacrifice to Korotrophos, or nurturer of youths, Athena Polius, Aglaros, Zeus Polius, Poseidon, and Pandrosus fell on the third of Scyrophorion, the same day the Arephoroi carried their sacred objects for the goddess. In the coastal deem of Phaleron, the Salaminoi, an extended family with strong ties to the nearby island of Salamis and its cult of Athena Skiros, maintained a sanctuary of the goddess. This attic sanctuary of Athena Skiros played a role in the vintage festival of the Oscophoria, and Athena herself, in association with the hero Skiros, received the clan's offering of a pregnant sheep in the winter month of Mamactarion. The little-known cult of Athena Polanus or of Polanyi, is important for the light that it sheds on the process by which the cults of Attica were absorbed into the larger system of the Athenian polis during the 8th and 7th centuries BC, and their continuing relations. Athenaeus preserves the rather mangled texts of a dedication and a sacred law pertaining to this Athena Polanus. From them, we learn that several of the inland deems, including Polanyi, were gathered into a league centered on the worship of Athena. No later than the 7th century BC, this cult was brought under the supervision of the state in the person of the Archon Basileus, or the King Archon, who had inherited the original king's religious authority. He selected a group of officials, known as Archontes, or rulers, who in turn designated parasitoi, or fellow diners, from each member deem. The Archontes and Parasitoi, the social elite of their communities, enjoyed a yearly banquet funded by the goddess in a building maintained for this purpose. Like several gods whose sanctuaries were located outside the urban area of Athens, Athena Polanus possessed considerable wealth and her sanctuary easily financed the annual feast. A 5th century BC temple in the Agora, moved from its original site in the Roman period and previously assigned to Ares, is now thought to be the shrine of Athena Polanus. Although she had a less dominating presence than at Athens, Athena was a prominent civic goddess in virtually every Ionian city by the 8th century BC. At Miletus, where Apollo was the patron deity, the 7th century BC temple of Athena was constructed in the commercial district of the city. It was repeatedly damaged and rebuilt over the succeeding centuries. 
An unbroken series of votive offerings, including metal items such as a fragmentary bronze griffin cauldron, stretches from the 8th century BC onwards and hints at the wealth of the sanctuary. Likewise, the earliest activity at Athena's sanctuary in Erythrae is dated to the 8th century BC. Among the oldest structures found there was a temple, rebuilt in the 6th century BC. Pausanias describes the cult statue of Athena Polius at Erythrae as a large enthroned Athena made of wood, holding a staff and crowned with a polos, a cylindrical headdress often worn by goddesses. Such representations of Athena with spinning tools are virtually absent from the Greek mainland, although facilities for sacred weaving in our sanctuaries were not unusual. At Smyrna, the first temple to Athena appeared in the early 7th century BC, and its successors grew ever more elaborate. Excavation has revealed a wealth of faience, ivory, terracotta, and stone objects traceable to Rhodes, Crete, Cyprus, and Syria, evidence of the cosmopolitan city's flourishing trade in the Orientalizing period. Around 600 BC, the Lydian ruler Aliates sacked the city and looted the temple, but the people quickly rebuilt it. Several mushroom-shaped capitals from the early 6th century BC temple have survived. Aliates also burned the temple of Athena at Assessos, in the territory of Miletus. As a result of the sacrilege, he fell ill, and the Delphic oracle ordered him to rebuild the temple as penance for his offense to the goddess. Investigation of the ancient site, where excavators found the remains of an archaic city, and at least one temple destroyed and rebuilt in the 7th century BC, supports the general outline of Herodotus' account, which we described in great detail in episode 15. In addition, Priene, Phocaea, Ephesus, Teos, Colophon, and Clazomenae also had cults of Athenopolius, demonstrating the great popularity of Athena amongst the Ionians. Herodotus relates that all Ionian cities, except for Ephesus and Colophon, celebrated the Apatoria, a coming-of-age festival celebrated by the Fratries, or clans. Athena and Zeus presided over the Apatoria at Athens, so the same may have been true in the Ionian cities. We discussed the Apatoria at Athens in great detail in episode 62. Tegea in Arcadia was an important religious center of ancient Greece, and the sanctuary containing the temple of Athena Alia is the richest site so far excavated in that district, and the only one to produce significant Mycenaean finds. The earliest material dates to the Late Bronze Age, and though cult activity is archaeologically visible only from about 900 BC, the worship of a goddess on the spot may have far deeper roots. Excavations have focused on the site of the successive temples and an associated sacred spring to the north, both of which yielded a rich variety of archaic and classical votives, including a wealth of bronzes, lead and iron objects, jewelry, and ivories. Some take the form of horses and deer, and there are also sealstone and fibulae. During the 8th century BC, the first temple was constructed of wattle and daub on an apsidal plan and had a neighboring metal workshop. It was replaced in the late 7th century BC by a monumental stone temple, which continued in use for some 300 years until it was destroyed by a fire in 392 BC. The sculptor and architect, Scopus, designed the third temple in the Doric order as one of the finest and largest in the Peloponnese. Only the foundations and some column drums are all that stand today. The priestess of the temple of Athena Alia at Tegea was always a maiden who held her office only until she reached the age of puberty. The archaeological museum at Tegea narrates the history of the temple and displays collections from the excavations. 
Its east pediment illustrated the Arcadian myth of the Caledonian boar hunt and the trophies from the great beast, including its hide and tusks, were proudly displayed within. Its other treasures, appropriate to Athena, included trophies of war, such as the chains that were brought by Spartan invaders who hoped to enslave the Tegeans, but themselves suffered this fate, mentioned in episode 22, and a bronze vessel used to feed the horses of the Persian general Mardonius, which was taken as a prize by the Tegean warriors involved in the capture of his camp at Plataea. The cult statue was a small ivory Athena, but it was looted by Augustus, along with the boar's tusks, and set up in his new form of Augustus at Rome. The earliest deity worshipped on the spot was probably not Athena, but an indigenous goddess called Alia, whose name seems to mean place of refuge. Indeed, asylum was an important function of the sanctuary in historical times, and we are told that the entire Peloponnese respected the sanctity of Athena's suppliants. The names of many people who saved themselves by seeking refuge in this sanctuary have been recorded there. The cult was so renowned that daughter sanctuaries were founded in Laconia and on the border with Argolis. The geometric finds from the sanctuary suggest concerns with fertility in the form of pomegranate pendants and women's issues in the form of loom weights, beads, and other jewelry in great numbers, but also include items more often associated with Athena's cult, such as miniature votive shields. In any case, if Athena and Aaliyah were distinct goddesses, they had merged by the 6th century BC, when a very pan-Hellenic bronze Athena with helmet, spear, shield, and aegis was deposited. In Laconia, a statue of Athena Aaliyah also existed on the road from Sparta to Therapne. Sparta was dotted with minor cult places of Athena. These included three separate shrines of Athena Calutheia, or of the road which were associated with a race ran by the suitors of Penelope. In the area of the Dromos were sanctuaries of Heracles and Athena Axioponos, or of deserved vengeance. The latter was connected with Heracles' punishment of Hippocoon for killing his nephew Oenos. And another shrine of Athena was founded by Theros, the great-grandson of Orestes and colonizer of Thera, or modern Santorini. The variety of her cults illustrates Athena's regular function as a goddess of nearness, the guardian and helper of heroes. It also reflects Sparta's background as a group of independent villages loosely gathered into a polis, but never fully urbanized or consolidated. On the Spartan Acropolis, a hill of no great height, the most important structure in the sanctuary of Athena Poliokos, or city protector, was the Halkioikos, or of the Bronze House. Its origins were attributed to the mythical king Tyndarus, though excavation shows that the earliest remains are geometric. The temple itself and its bronze cult statue belong to the 6th century BC. The temple was apparently sheathed in bronze plates, some of which were found by excavators at the turn of the last century. None of the relief-decorated plates have survived, but these included scenes of Athena's birth and the feats of Peloponnesian heroes including Heracles, Castor and Pollux, and Perseus. The sanctuary was well known as a place of asylum for criminals, even those under a death sentence. The ancient sources tend to draw attention to this function only when it is violated, as in the gruesome death of the Spartan general Pausanias, the victor at Plataea in 479 BC. Suspected of intrigue with Xerxes and of fomenting a hellout rebellion, Pausanias was recalled to Sparta about 470 BC, and when he realized that he was to be arrested, ran into a back room of the bronze house. The Spartan ephor sealed him in the chamber until he was dying of starvation, and then carried him outdoors so as not to pollute the sanctuary with his death. 
Later, in the belief that they were being punished by Zeus Hecesios for violating the rights of a suppliant, they consulted Delphi about these events. The oracle commanded them to move Pausanias's tomb into the sanctuary and to give back two bodies instead of one to the goddess of the bronze house. Therefore, they installed two bronze statues of Pausanias beside Athena's altar. Little is known of the cult at the bronze house, but Polybius describes a traditional observance that involved a parade of all the Spartan warriors in full armor to the altar, where the ephors waited to conduct a sacrifice. Among the finds in the sanctuary were bronze figurines of Athena and a trumpeteer, and nearby on the Acropolis, a 5th century BC marble statue of a helmeted hoplite known today as Leonidas. Unexplained is the large number of bells, 40 of bronze and 80 of terracotta. They may have been dedicated by night watchmen who carried them on their patrols or warriors who used them as horse trappings. Pindar's 7th Olympian Ode, written for the boxer Diagoras of Rhodes in 464 BC, celebrates the prominent cult of Athena in the city of Lindos, one of the three original Greek cities on the island of Rhodes. Like the people of Alakomenai in Boeotia or Alephera in Arcadia, the Rhodians believe that their island witnessed the birth of Athena from Zeus's head. Helios, the patron deity of Rhodes, urged his children to be the first to honor the goddess with an altar and the smoke of sacrifice. But climbing to the peak of the Lindian Acropolis, they forgot to bring live embers, establishing instead the custom of fireless sacrifice. Zeus confirmed these events by sending snow of gold on the city, while Athena herself taught the Heliidae the skills to create wondrous works of art that moved like living creatures. An alternative legend attributed the founding of the sanctuary to Danaeus and his daughters as they fled from Egypt, while the archaic temple was built by the 6th century BC tyrant Cleobulus, one of Greece's seven sages and an associate of the pharaoh Amasis of Egypt. Amasis dedicated to Athena Lindia two stone statues and a linen corselet embroidered with figures and gold thread. These connections between Rhodes and Egypt are borne out by actual fragments of Egyptian sculpture discovered near the temple of Athena Polius at Camaros. Around 392 BC, the temple and the Acropolis and its contents were completely destroyed, perhaps in the violent struggles between the supporters of Sparta and Athens, and a lengthy period of recovery followed. Roughly a century after its destruction, the Rhodians began to rebuild the sanctuary on a lavish scale. Conscious of Athena Lindia's distinguished past, but lacking the rich variety of heirloom dedications to be seen in other sanctuaries, they eventually decided to create a list of all the famous gifts that had been lost, and to display it in the sanctuary. This inscription, known as the Lindian Chronicle, dates to 99 BC, and is one of the longest surviving Hellenistic inscriptions. It was excavated early in the 20th century by a Danish expedition, which found it being used as a paving block for the Byzantine Church of St. Stephen, near the Theater of Lindos. The chronicle is inscribed on a marble slab, approximately 8 by 3 feet, which is now broken into two pieces. It contains a catalog of dedications with about 45 entries, though only 37 are still legible. They record fabulous gifts from ancient heroes, such as Heracles and Helen, and from historical figures, such as Alexander the Great and Pyrrhus, as well as the descriptions of four miracle stories about the goddess, of which only one is still totally legible, and two more are fragmentary. The votive catalog, complete with footnotes, which cite written sources for each entry, is an interesting mixture of legend and history. In spite of its later date, it is an invaluable resource for Athena's cult. 
It shows, for example, how colonists from Rhodes maintained a relationship with Athena Lindia by sending gifts to her shrine. The votive catalog lists gifts of archaic and classical date from Lindian colonists at Cyrene, Phacelus, Gela, Arcragus, and Soloi, all of which are probably authentic dedications. On the next episode, we continue with our discussion of the Protectress of Athens by taking a closer examination of her most famous sanctuary. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 65, The Athenian Acropolis. Thank you.